Podcast One. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, you're about to hear from a New York-based Australian expat who's wearing more hats than the crowd at a Melbourne Cup. Joshua Lowcock is a central figure globally in policy development for the advertising and marketing industries on how to manage tech giants like Google and Facebook. I'm really not sure how he does it, but Joshua is the Chief Digital and Innovation Officer at UM in the US and he's UM's Global Brand Safety Officer. He's a non-executive director of the Australian-listed Ascent Group, which owns 420 stores and 10 retail brands across Australia and New Zealand, including the Athlete's Foot, Hype DC and Platypus. Ascent also has the distribution rights for brands like Sketches, Merrill, Vans, Doc Martens, Timberland and Silconi. Joshua is also a non-executive director of Cash Rewards, the cashback firm which is heading for an Australian IPO. But that's not all. Joshua is also a US board member for the Mobile Marketing Association. He's on the board of the World Federation of Advertisers Global Alliance for Responsible Media. He's a global board member on Facebook's Client Council and editorial board member for the Brand Safety Institute. If that's not enough, Joshua is the architect for UM's parent company, Media Brands, which is part of the giant marketing services holding company, IPG, which recently unveiled what I think is a global benchmark for a set of 10 media responsibility principles and a media responsibility audit of social media platforms. They've now been adopted by the peak US agency body, the 4As, and his initiative has been hugely influential in the work coming from the Global Alliance for Responsible Media, backed by some of the biggest brands in the world. So welcome, Joshua Lowcock, dialing in from New York. Let's start with an obvious and potentially curly one. You've watched the smash hit documentary on Netflix, The Social Dilemma. Uh, I think many have found it disturbing. Others say it's the best effort yet to bring everything together on the downside and dangers of social media and those mighty beasts in big tech like Google, YouTube, Instagram and Facebook. All of them, of course, are essentially bankrolled by brands and the advertising industry in the great arena we call the attention economy. So let's hear from you, Joshua, who might just know a little bit about all this stuff. What did you make of The Social Dilemma, for starters? Like most people, I've watched the documentary. I think it shines an important spotlight on issues that we're, as an industry and society, are grappling with, and it's making us have much-needed and long-called-for conversations. So I think the more people that watch it and the more conversations we have about it, the better. Does it put any uh, renewed pressure on both the for significant change on the platforms and equally on the advertising industry? Because, you know, as they make the point in the doco, a lot of this... Uh, a lot of the challenges that we have in society at the moment, whether it be civics and beyond mental health or public health, is because of the advertising economy. What do you think? What's been the reaction and the discussion amongst your peers on this? I think, you know, it's easy to put the advertising economy in the spotlight. And yes, I'm a working the advertising economy, so I'm probably going to be a little bit defensive of it. But I think there's multiple dimensions that need to be examined. It you know, there's an absence of clear regulatory oversight and understanding of much of what's going on. So I think that needs to be considered. If you watch the documentary, it talks a lot about 
time on site and monthly active users and engagement. Those are metrics that are not only important to advertisers, they're also important to Wall Street. So I think there's a conversation that needs to be had about what does the finance industry and the investment community actually reward platforms for as well. And, you know, advertising's funded a lot of things in our collective lifetimes and in the human experience. I think just to pinpoint it solely at the foot of advertising as the fall guy is unfair. So I think we need to have a holistic conversation about all the elements in play, including, you know, the impact of the data economy as well and privacy and the unregulated side of much of that throughout the world together to really solve for this. Fair points, except that even Wall Street, uh, when it looks at attention and time spent, that is all about, still about revenues. And and, and this is not a beat up on, on Adland, but it's also, I have to say, we've talked, um, you know, last week about this in our earlier briefing. The frustration I, I've found is that um, it's very difficult to get uh, the industry to talk about some of these some of these things. And the reality is that uh, the attention economy uh, or advertising rewards attention and Wall Street follows where the money goes and the money is going is being allocated by advertising in this instance. So I take your point on Wall Street, but I guess this gets to the point of behind the walls, Joshua, I guess there's been very, very solid debate in industry, at least in the US where you are, around these issues. Many are reluctant to talk publicly about some of this stuff, and I think this is where um, I'm just interested in, 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 in the depth and understanding and debate that's going on, at least with your peers in the US versus the public debate, because everyone's very careful. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. You know, what people say in private is not sometimes what they say in public. I would counter that with what we've tried to do and what I've tried to do within media brands holistically is introduce this concept of media responsibility, And so media responsibility has actually helped shift the conversation around that. And part of that is a result of the Facebook boycott and part of that's in reaction to other things. Great point. It does get us to what Media Brands has been doing with this media responsibility audit. It's probably the first and and most robust attempt that I've seen uh, by any advertising and media holding company, network or or industry participant at all, really, um, to acknowledge and address some of these these issues um, at an industry level. We will get to some of the detail on this shortly, and it's really interesting what the the principles that that you've sort of helped develop. But I guess at the top line is uh, we've seen this before in various guises as i said this is probably the most robust is it actually going to have any impact on the social platforms and how major advertisers behave um because you know i think we've talked brands are essentially my view is brands are essentially as perhaps as addicted to cheap highly targeted reach as we the people are to our social feeds aren't they and so you know the impact that these media principles and the the audit report that you're you're developing each quarter is it going to have an impact so i think it's going to have an impact but i want to wind back to i want to wind back to the social dilemma as well because there's two sides to the coin there's the public and users of the platforms themselves so dollars follow where the users are unless users actually move away from a platform it's hard to have advertisers redirect their spend in another direction. You're not going to find advertisers walk away or deliberately walk away from an audience. What we've got to do, it's the the social dilemma educates people. I think media responsibility principles gets advertisers thinking about where they invest their money more broadly than what you sort of set up as sort of cheap reach and impressions. And what we're trying to do is take a leaf out of corporate and social responsibility where brands and organisations have made firm decisions about what they stand for in terms of diversity and inclusion, 
environmental protection and they pass those obligations further down the you know supply chain to their suppliers and if advertising and media is a significant investment or part of their budget they've got to also then pass those same corporate social responsibility expectations onto the advertising ecosystem as well to improve the lives of their customers but also society at large and this is where and this is interesting right because this is where you're building your media responsibility principles into broader corporate strategy essentially correct that's where you see this playing yeah and then to answer your question from before which is this is then how you will change the behavior of platforms because if it becomes something that's embedded culturally in a brand or a marketer's conversation with a platform and where they advertise all the time it's not the theme of the week it's the thing that's intrinsic to the culture and and the strategic imperatives of of an organization correct and its suppliers right so this is this is where it gets really interesting because you've actually broadened the whole argument from just a, a media kind of debate to a organizational responsibility which is aligned to all those other things you talk about whether it be environment social civics where brands have actually stood up and exhibited values before that they believe in yeah and how's that landing in the conversations with both your your clients and the broader market and organisations beyond marketers, right? Because this involves, as you say, there are in many organisations there are corporate social responsibility and environmental principles that they've, they've pledged and aligned to uh, CFOs and senior management. How does this how does this land at that level? Where are you at with that? Yeah, so there's a lot to break down in that question. We'll start with the industry first. So it's landed very well in the industry. We developed the media responsibility principles, subsequently the 4As, which is the advertising agency group here in the US, has adopted those principles as well. And we're in conversations with other industry bodies to uh, adopt them. From a client perspective, it's resonated incredibly well, faster than even I imagined, because brands have been struggling with this for a while and we made it easy to understand having 10 principles were grounded in commercial, like things that aligned with commercial values has done extreme, you know, extremely exceedingly well. And then more broadly, just across the organization and with media partners and the like, they've been quick to adopt them and learn from them. Silicon Valley is a highly competitive ecosystem for them to actually be measured and evaluated against these principles. They all want to come first it's injected a lot of needed transparency into what these com- you know these platforms and companies actually stand for well we should break it down for the for, for the listener and the our audience if they if they are not aware um, the the 10 media res- uh, readers media responsibility principles are as as follows promote respect protect people data collection and use diverse and represent- diverse and representative children's well-being no hate speech no misinformation, advertising transparency, accountability, and enforcing policy. Now they are—that's a massive sweeping list of things that to um, to to sort of get your head around and to audit, Joshua. So, where is it at? Like, maybe just tell us a little bit about uh, how you're doing this, and then we'll get back into the implications and what's been the industry response. But they're they're a really big subject. For instance, children's health. No misinformation. My God, how do you how do you get how do you audit that stuff? Yeah, so let's start with misinformation because that's one where everybody wants to get into a philosophical debate on what is truth, 
And we've actually really tried to narrow it down and bring some focus to it. So for misinformation and disinformation, and across the entire audit, just to give everyone context, we had about 250-odd questions across the 10 principles, of which then divided into subset questions when partners answered. But for no misinformation, we picked uh, four strategic pillars of misinformation that needed to be addressed urgently, which was environmental, uh, election, COVID-19, and vaccination. So we picked non-debatable factual areas of misinformation that needed to be addressed. There's lots of other areas, and I'm not saying other areas aren't as important, but those are four things that categorically, you know they align to historical organisational values. So environmental protection, most companies have an environmental po policy. For COVID-19, every brand that, are, uh, that we work with either sells in a store or operates a retail environment. And so they have mask mandates. So you go, look, you don't want your staff, your team members exposed to harm. So why wouldn't you want mask mandates articulated firmly and clearly online? Vaccinations are important because if we want society to operate again, when the COVID-19 vaccine is available, we don't want misinformation about that. And election misinformation, we know categorically that there was election interference in 2016. The US operates on a voluntary voting system. We want electoral participation. And a lot of advertisers here in the US at least operate what, I, what you would call get out the vote campaign. So they're not advocating for a particular issue. They're just encouraging uh, participation. So that's another one where we know it aligns with the corporate value. So for everything we did, we just focused down on things that we knew would matter to advertisers rather than getting into deep philosophical debates. Protecting children, we looked at the age of 13, 16, 18 and 21 because there's different regulatory regimes around the world on what a child is, both from a privacy or legal age, legal drinking age perspective. So we tested against all of these sorts of things. We looked at international laws around discrimination. So we looked at the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights and some of the work that's been done out of the UN on protection of people. So there's a lot of bodies of work that we could rely on to give us guidance and then test and audit against those specific items. So how much of this is, because uh, it's even with that, that those more refined boundaries that you've just you've just explained that's still that's still big task to, to audit and measure and benchmark these platforms on so do you have people do you have machines uh, how do you get to this whole um, audit result so we have people you have real people in the worldest world of technology we actually have people so there was about 15 of us in the project team throughout the world uh, between New York Canada Europe and Australia and we had I'll say good cooperation from the partners as well. So everything in the audit is factual based. There's not a sliding scale of score yourself on this on one to 10. We're looking for yes, no numerical answers. We also went in uh, trust but verify. So we asked questions, but we also went into the platforms. I've worked in brand safety for a number of years. We know how to find inappropriate content. We know how to report things and actually track performance against these metrics. So it's a, it's a combination of factors in play. 
but it's real people doing real legwork. What about, and the final, we won't go through these, these 10, but obviously data collection and use and, and privacy and that sort of, that whole issue is obviously clearly on the rise, at least in a, in a regulatory uh, environment, both uh, US, Europe, and even in Australia, you're, you're, no doubt you're across the, uh, what the ACCC is up to and the, 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 the street fight that's going on now between um, the ACCC, the federal government and some of the platforms. But uh, privacy or um, data collection and use and privacy, very quickly, where do you see that playing out in the next year or two, Joshua? Because it's a it's another big, big trigger, right, for some some contention. It's a really interesting one, and I'll be you know I'll throw some controversy out there. It also needs to be looked into in terms of antitrust issues and the power of key platforms, because you can't separate your individual right to privacy. You can't separate from data collection and use, and you can't separate from market power of key players. You know, the, the advice I give to regulators is you need to be very cautious about driving privacy regulation that just strengthens the power of incumbents and doesn't open up the dynamics of the marketplace. It's a complicated one because it also corners everyone else in the ecosystem. So if I come out and say, look, privacy regulation is not in the best interest of the marketplace, out of context, that sounds like I'm not a advocate for privacy when I'm a firm advocate for privacy. What I do not want to happen is centralization of market power that disadvantages both individual human beings, people, and advertisers, users of the platforms. And that's essentially where we're headed at the moment, even with GDPR, you think, don't you? I think it's a it's a very slippery slope because the only people that can build the, the frameworks that they need to protect themselves from regulatory regimes and creatively insulate themselves are those with deep balance sheets and large legal firms behind them. And we know that. So what's the alternative to what we've got at the moment and what's being proposed? I honestly haven't seen a reasonable solution proposed. And I think regulators need to have a conversation about data centralization first as part of any antitrust investigations. As in who can or whether they should? As in how is the centralization of data driving the entire advertising economy and the market power that exists? Well, and that's, again, uh, unpack that. Let's let's go for about three hours on that one, shall we? Do you think uh, we are getting, is, is there any market, any country that's getting close to even asking those sorts of questions or understanding, comprehending that issue? That's a good open-ended question. I haven't seen anyone sort of come close to it. I'm potentially optimistic about CPRA, which is the next evolution of CCPA, uh, which is a California-based privacy regulation in the US, and only because CPRA contemplates having an investigative power. Right. And I think an investigative power is going to be important. And that iteration comes through when? That That's on the, it's proposition, I think, 24 in the November ballot. Okay. So whether people even get down to proposition 24 on the ballot is <laughs> yes, another thing. Right. With everything you're talking about now then, um, particularly in the consolidation or, or you know, what we, where we would define as monopolies or market power, um, I do find it fascinating that, you know, if you were, if we were having this conversation 15 years ago, market power and people would be very vocal uh, in the industry about not wanting to give one television network too much market power in Australia over another and they would deliberately sort of keep them in check by ensuring that their allocation of funds would keep, you know, keep everyone honest. We don't have that conversation 
conversation other than you talking about it, by the way. We very few in our industry talk about this now. But what is the implications if nothing happens, if the, if the status quo remains? If the status quo remains, at some point we'll all be working for a subsidiary or part of one of the major monopoly organisations. What Professor Scott Galloway would say, the big four. So it's going to be Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook or some of the, uh, the Chinese players. Yeah, something to that extent. I'm not going to name and shame. Uh, I just did, I think, so sorry about that. But that was me, not you, uh, Joshua. So, and, and the time frame on that, is it, is it a, you know, realistically, is it five years, ten years? What do you think uh, that looks like when it's basically um, too late? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a lot to unpack from there because there's a lot of other movements that are going on in the US that sort of impact that. So there's Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which could reform and change the sector we know because from public statements that the US Department of Justice and state attorney generals are doing antitrust investigations into the major some of the major players at the moment that's a long that can be a very long haul right that sort of stuff if anything to learn from the Microsoft antitrust investigations it could be decades worth of work for no outcome i get back to it needs to be this conversation around data like when you were talking about marketplaces in the Australian, you know, TV and TV laws and anti-siphoning laws and regional and, you know, metropolitan markets and the like, a lot of the debate gets around the definition of marketplaces. And I think that's what gets forgotten in the advertising debate today is if you're a regulator trying to understand the advertising ecosystem, you will have a discussion about a marketplace and the marketplace for audiences and do all, advertisers have a choice? And you can sort of go, well, TV is a substitute for search or YouTube's a substitute for cable and you can have all these and talk about that as a marketplace. What is a fundamental thing that's changed in the definition of marketplaces or how decisions are made in the marketplaces today is that data informs the way advertising decisions are made. And so unless you have a meaningful conversation about the impact of data driving marketplace decisions, you're not going to have a meaningful conversation about antitrust and com competition in the advertising ecosystem. And that's, you know, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but when you talk about the, the data issue, or I still try to say data, not data, but anyway, well, well that's, a, that's another thing. But you're essentially talking about there about collection, consent and trading of data, right? So that's, a, that, that's the underpinnings or does it go beyond that? There's more to that. And, you know, I'd encourage anyone listening to read uh, Shoshana Zuboff's book, Surveillance Capitalism. Yeah, great book. Because there's so much economies of scale that come from data aggregation and use and extraction of value from that data. It's not. It's beyond the concept historically of economies of scale. There's just so much sustainable, defensible, competitive advantage that it becomes impossible to catch up. And that's the bit that I think regulators and us collectively as an industry need to be aware of. So it's not a case of, you know, I could give everyone the same database of the population of Australia, but decades worth of learning and insights and social graphs or search graphs or insights that you build and predictions on human behavior that you're building from that data set are an unassailable competitive advantage. Mm. And her book is essentially, the Surveillance Capitalism is, is essentially a warning shot of where it could go though. It's not, it's not like she's sort of trying to be pragmatic about this, right? I think in part it's a warning shot, in part it's reporting on things that have happened already. 
So the takeout, but her, her her recommendations are what? Like, what is what is her takeout? Because it is a big book. It's a great book. Yeah, her her key takeaway is she was on the social dilemma, which is one that we collectively need to wake up and understand what's happening. And I think the social dilemma helps that because surveillance capitalism, while a great book, is not necessarily bedtime reading for everyone. <laughs> yes. And I think the other one is regulators need to act. And regulators need to act with some degree of urgency. You're right, because, you know, in, in self-interest, even in your self-interest, uh, Joshua, at IPG and some of those other companies that you sit on, sit on the boards of, uh, even in Australia, the reality there is that media brands and your parent company and everyone else's parent company, if it continues like it is, you, you, you will lose sustainable advantage as well, right, in the data game, because there are other players that have got a whole bunch of natural advantage now. That's a more complicated and what's the future of the advertising industry type question. Love those big ones though. The reason why I pause on that is there's a lot of other things to unpack on that because that gets beyond data and the way the friction's been removed from the economy and the way media's traded has changed so that some media clients can trade themselves, some they can't. The challenge and the value that's ascribed to creative versus media buying to consulting to data, there's just a lot to unpack there. Mm. Yeah, no, fair enough. All the more reason why I'll get you back on to um, to have another another crack at that one. So, listen, just on those media principles and the and the um, the audit that you've now conducted, you launched it what a couple of months ago now. Um, when did you launch? Yeah, end of July. End of July. How's it gone down in the US? Uh, what is the conversations you're having both with advertisers uh, and the platforms? What is the initial responses to this? And I caveat this by saying, you know, you mentioned earlier about, you know, uh, misinformation and we know that the US elections uh, had interference. Of course, we also know that in the instance of Facebook, and this is me naming and shaming, not you, Joshua, but we do know that um, Facebook and Zuckerberg denied it was a reality for some time and it was only pressure and and, and relentless uh, discussion about this in, in open conversations. They eventually acquiesced and said, okay, you're right. They said, you know, they resisted on that. You're also on the Facebook client council too, by as I understand, globally. So what um, what are the conversations from the platforms and what are the conversations for the advertisers? There's a setup if you've never seen one. Yeah, that's a good setup. I'll start with the platforms first and then I'll do the advertisers. So we had all the platforms participate in the audit. So they agreed to participate under NDA and answer the you know 250-odd questions. We are also exceedingly fair and transparent with them in the senses we got the audit results back from them. We did all our own research as well. We collated and aggregated the data and then we prepared mini packs for every platform to actually go back and tell them where we saw them weak, where we saw opportunity for improvement. Because the idea of the audit is not to be punitive, it's actually to improve the industry. So in one sense, it's very altruistic. The reaction from the platforms by and large was receptive. Uh, again, I'd echo a statement I made earlier. They're highly competitive, so a lot of people were disappointed they didn't come first. But in everything we did, we were, I'll say, fair. We showed them the opportunities for improvement, and we have seen, and I, again, I won't name platforms for confidentiality reasons, but we saw some of them quickly adjust or adapt their policies to improve in areas that we flagged that they were significantly lacking. And so that fills me with a lot of optimism that we've done the right thing with the audit and platforms are keen to engage and we're filling a hole in the market, which is 
no one's actually stepped in and done this to sort of, you know, grandi be a little bit grandiose about what we've done. So we've given them a lot of transparency that, by and large, they also desperately needed. Uh, clients, on the flip side, were very, very quick to embrace the principles. A lot of them have adjusted or tweaked them unique to their market conditions or environment or industry vertical, which is to be applauded and as expected. Uh, what it's led to, and I'm, I'm going to laugh, is it's led to them having a lot of very pointed conversations with platforms and being better informed about what to ask for. And so that's good. Uh, where I think it will go longer term for some of them is to some extent we might end up with what I'll call customized audits because there's certain industry verticals that we do need to go deeper on a certain types of issues. Uh, and the only one that I can think of off the top of my head, and again, without naming clients, is healthcare. There's a lot of vaccinations and COVID-19 is just sort of the tip of the spear. If you think about what goes on in the healthcare sector, so there's a lot more work we could do on an audit specifically around healthcare. Two things. Um, has it changed investment or shifted investment around on, on the advertiser side as a result of seeing the audit results and the benchmarking that you're doing on who's, who's behaving the best or uh, complying uh, responsibly? No partner has been, media partner has been what I would call punished, as in the sense spend hasn't moved away from them entirely. I think it's led to more thoughtful investment in certain ad products so it's easy to talk about a platform being a platform, but a platform from my perspective consists of multiple ad products. So certain ad products have now become unappealing or deprioritized. I'm being very diplomatic with my choice of words. I can tell, yes, you're, you're Prime Minister or President next, uh, Joshua. They've deprioritized certain media types on a platform because they don't offer the controls or there's not the level of transparency we need to demonstrate that they're not causing or constituting harm, uh, you know, and these conversations will be ongoing. One of the things that we've done, to be clear, is the audit only rewards actual work, not promise work. So you don't get a score based on what you promised to do. You actually have to have done it. Some of the partners came back with commitments of what they plan to do in the next three to six months. And so I'll say the jury's still out, as in we're giving them the benefit of the doubt investment might have been slightly adjusted and we're holding them now accountable to delivering on some of the things they've committed to doing as a result of the audit. So if I said, and I'll use you as an example, Paul, if you've not done enough on election misinformation, but you're committing to do it, we've asked for a timeline, we've asked for evidence of what you're committing to do, we will track your performance against that and we will review our investment accordingly against each of those milestones. So the question that I doubt I'm going to get an answer for, but I'm going to try anyway, is who's the most responsible platform in your audit? Uh, no, look, I'm happy to tell you that. And I'm, before I give you that answer, I'm going to say it's a measure of effort, not safety. So none of this says that they are the most safe or the best place to be. They've done the most to be responsible. So YouTube came out first overall, which some people are surprised at, others are not. Again, 
they've learnt from two years of absolute pain in terms of taking proactive action. From the boycott a couple of years ago, you mean? Yeah, from the terrorist videos, the hate speech, the pedophile comment scandal. You could go, yeah. Like they went through a lot of pain and they've invested disproportionately higher than other platforms. What I always say to clients, and I'm happy to say it to you here in this environment, is they scored the best in a class full of students that scored mostly poor as well. So if you look at the, their peer set and the, the class, they came first in a class of overall poor students. And I don't divulge anyone's score, but no one did what I would call exceedingly well. Right, so including YouTube. YouTube's done better than most, but there's still there's, there is... There's still ample room for improvement on everyone. Right, okay. Well, well, you know, at least you've said something like that because um, bloody hell, it's very hard to get get the industry to even say that. So well done, Joshua. So finally, because we're going to circle around and talk about some of these things we've touched on today and some other things, um, but we're, we're just about out of time. Uh, I'm interested in, in, in sort of even what's going on globally. Some of your work and these principles, um, sort of parallel at least, what the World Federation of Advertisers and those big multinational brands have come together on the Global Alliance for Responsible Media. Very similar uh, intent, strategic intent uh, going on here. Um, is there overlap? What are, what are you involved with those with that group? Because they are talking similar stuff to you. So yes, Media Brands is represented on the Global Alliance for Responsible Media, otherwise known as GARM. There's a lot of similarity to some extent in what we're doing, but there is a a major disconnect or something that needs to be understood, which is GARM consists of every major agency holding company, lots of advertisers, including competitors and every major platform. GARM is doing some great work in terms of its ability to truly hold platforms accountable, though it's somewhat constrained because one, platforms themselves probably don't want to hold themselves accountable through an industry body. And two, having so many competitors in a room opens the door for issues around collusion, any competitive behavior. If they were going out saying, buy here, not buy there, all these people score higher or lower. So I think what we're doing actually dovetails very nicely with GARM. GARM can establish standards. They released their Evil 11 a couple of weeks ago. That's highly valued and important for the industry because it signals this is what the industry finds is important. It stops platforms dividing and conquering, going, well, this advertiser wants that and that advertiser wants that. Our audit can actually then step in and audit against the delivery on each of these things and see what's being achieved. And that's the same for there's other industry bodies, whether that's the MRC, the Media Ratings Council, which is a, a semi-government aligned body here in the US, we can look at who's abiding by and adopting MRC standards. We can look at what the IAB has issued. So I think the audit is good because it sits independent of those organisations, can take a holistic view of the industry, and we're not caught up in the competitive whirlwinds that you get in a industry association that consists of many people that sometimes have difficulty being in the same room together. Yes, yes. So ultimately, you sound, and I'm not, so this is why we need to hear more from you, uh, you, you sound optimistic ultimately that some of this stuff, some of these big issues and some of these things can improve at an industry level and at a society level. I am not as optimistic, at least without more pressure anyway, because as I keep saying and seeing, platforms and, and businesses generally, really, without pressure, without 
the naming and shaming, to be honest, things don't move. The reason why YouTube's, you know, now at the top of your worst class or, you know, average class is because there was pressure put on them, public pressure put on them on a whole bunch of areas which they wouldn't want surfaced. So um, I guess you're the you're the voice of pragmatism here, Joshua. You believe that this is that there is things uh, will go okay. I'd like to lean more on the side of optimism and pragmatism. The audit's quarterly, so we're actually in market with our next audit at the moment, and we have a league table, so who knows who will be number one in the next audit, and we're committed to quarterly audits for the foreseeable future. So I think that continues to apply pressure in the market. And by arming our clients with this information and embedding it as part of an ongoing cultural conversation, not just a one and done on the you know July boycotts. That's how you're going to affect and impact change. So this is a you know the cliche. This is a marathon, not a sprint. So it's not going to be resolved by the end of this year. I think there's a lot of work that people like me and others need to do with regulators and sort of the open-ended invitation I always have is I'm open to having conversations with regulators that want to be educated about the market. And I wrote something earlier in the year to that effect. It's not fair to criticise the industry or the lack of pri- you know, appropriate privacy regulations or industry reforms unless you're going to step up and play a role in driving that change. And so the media responsibility audit through media brands is one of those things and we'll continue to drive that with industry associations and everywhere else we can. ACCC and the feds in Australia, you're Australian, you've been over in the US or offshore for a long time, but what do you make of the uh, the current street fight or the knife fight in a phone box, as I like to call it, between the ACCC, the feds and uh, the platforms? You know, as someone out of the country, it's interesting to observe as an Australian, I think that, you know, there's so many other parts of noise in the debate that aren't getting solved for. So, we really could talk for three hours. You know, I'm a firm believer in the importance and value of journalism and news and the investment in the news ecosystem. I think the conversations, the debate around that have actually pulled the, the cart off the rails a little bit because it diverts from the, what the real issues are. Which is data in your view? I don't think it's a non-starter, but I think taxing the platforms almost sort of goes, you know what, we're saying what they're doing is okay and we'll just take some money from them to try and fix the problem without actually understanding what the root problems in the industry and ecosystem are. And to you, that's data. And I think that's absolutely that's data or data. Just for you, I'll say data. Uh, yeah, thank you, Joshua. <laughs> thank you. So we're going to end on that, and our next conversation is going to start on that very point, and we're going to get drilled down into it because if uh, I agree with you that there is, and there's a lot of conversation, by the way, that I'm hearing and having uh, with people in the market that's beyond the advertising market that is exactly your point, and, and I think we need to surface that. So if I can get a, pr- a pledge from you that you'll talk to me once more, um, we will loop around and talk about the big data issue. Do I have that publicly? I'm happy to pledge for that you just give me a cooey and i'll be there okay great great to talk joshua thanks for your time congrats on the effort and the initiative because it's it's a start and it's something stay safe i think you're in new york right in new york in manhattan stay safe in manhattan and and let's talk in the next week or two thanks joshua sounds great MI3 Audio Edition was presented by paul mcintyre that's moi in collaboration with podcast one australia producer nick slater music by matt dwyer For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button.